Welcome to Tuning In, the podcast of the Handel and Haydn Society, recorded in Boston, Massachusetts. H&H is the nation's longest-running arts organization, founded in 1815, and since the 1980s has been a leader in the performance on period instruments of music from the Renaissance through the 19th century. In each episode of our podcast, we explore music and artistry and the way both weave us through society and life in general, within the early music field and outside of it. We highlight music featured during the society's past and that planned for its future. I'm your host, Guy Fishman. In the last episode of Tuning In, Handel and Haydn's associate conductor Ian Watson and I began a conversation rooted in performances we gave in Santo Domingo, the Dominican Republic, of the six Brandenburg Concerti by Johann Sebastian Bach. These took place in March 2020, and for many of us who played, these were the last public performances we gave before the shutdown. That conversation centered on the tour and aspects of touring, and I wanted to continue by talking to Ian about the music. This was H&H's first performance in the Caribbean, and there may have been other firsts in this visit. I wanted to include the impressions of our host festival's founders and directors as well. Yolanda Boras is a pianist, educator, and consultant, an award-winning author, and a native Dominican. Conductor John Thomas Dotson has directed orchestras in the United States and abroad, as well as on CD, and in addition has utilized his training in Buddhist meditation to lead seminars in mindfulness for musicians and non-musicians alike. They are executive and artistic director, respectively. Yolanda and John, welcome. Hey, it's great to be with you. Thank you, Guy. Nice to talk to you today. Likewise. Uh, First, Yolanda, can you recount the origin of your festival and what your hope was for its goals and impact? Yes, uh, the festival has been, in a way, a lifelong dream of mine. I came to the United States to study music at Peabody Conservatory, and I met uh, John there. And that was a dream. That dream came true in 2010 during a conversation with a couple of musician friends on a beach of the Dominican Republic. We wanted to create a music project, and in 2011... Conciertos de la Villa de Santo Domingo was born with our first concert. It was the mission of the Fundación de la Villa de Santo Domingo, so the foundation that presents these concerts and festival to preserve, protect, and promote colonial city of Santo Domingo, which had been abandoned when we brought the concerts then people started coming back to hear amazing music, amazing musicians, and to learn about their history. So for our listeners' benefit, the colonial city, first of all, it's hard to describe how beautiful it is and to imagine that it had been abandoned and in disrepair until relatively recently is mind-boggling. It's it's absolutely stunning. And uh, this is literally the gateway to the new world. This is where, you know, Columbus's house is there, right? I mean, this is, it's a, it's a difficult, history, but uh, a rich history. Yes, Guy, uh, the colonial city has the first paved street of the New World with the stones, of mm. course, the first judicial court, the first cathedral, the first university. There are wonderful mysteries, too. There are underground tunnels for when Francis Drake came to attack the city and people fled to the churches where they felt that they would be safer. It's just the first of many things that happened in the New World. When you describe the festival, it sounds like you had a goal to not just 
present music, but to impact a country that both of you clearly love dearly. What is that impact that you hope to achieve? I think the goal was to do much more than make concerts. Actually, that was one of the very first conversations I remember. We saw this as being something much larger and it needed to be purpose-driven. So excellence and community and patrimony and education, everything needed to kind of run through a prism of those words. We had a footprint of each of those words that it was important that it be large enough for us to decide any project that needed to have impact in those four words. And we would speak about not only living out the mission, but living out the words. How does this live out the words and, and make that into some kind of tangible reality? And it was very important that we reached children to people in their 90s, anybody that can attend a concert, that most of the concerts and the events are free or very accessible, that we reached also at-risk neighborhoods within the colonial city, and that were also offered for free to students uh, from around the country. Every year, we have over 800 students that are bused in so that they can hear for the first time the sound of a lute or the sound of a viola da gamba or something that they have never seen in their lives. Your mission statement is very much aligned with H&H's own uh, educational mission statement. Do you feel like presenting the Handel and Haydn Society in some way furthered the impact that you hope to achieve? Yeah, I think it was absolutely central. I think it went right down the middle of the road of everything we were trying to do. First of all, we were bringing a world-class organization, and there are specialists in this particular repertoire, and it was going to be with some of their finest musicians. You were committed to it as an organization. And the other thing was that the, if I think about patrimony, the choice of the location was actually part and parcel of the mission. We were playing it in a building that was being built at the same time that Bach would have been writing the autograph of the Brandenburgs. Bach wrote it in 1721. The building was finished in 1722. Obviously, it took uh, some time to build, so these are really contemporaneous. It was an amazing kind of thing, and I think this really did live out the words, live out the mission, absolutely, in my mind. Mm. John, when we spoke about the potential repertoire for this visit, we settled on the Brandenburg concertos very quickly. What drew you to presenting these works? I remember that as being almost instantaneous. When you made the first outreach, I remember saying to Jolie, I want this to have real impact. You can't do this every day, and we need to build the whole festival around what we could do, and we should do the very best thing that we can do. And the very first thing that I thought was the whole cycle of the Brandenburgs, and not a portion of it, but everything, to have that on original instruments. We had bought um, a harpsichord the previous year. We had an instrument that was available to be able to bring these musicians and to be able to present it. And then to put it in the right space would be unforgettable for all of us. Yolanda, what do you know of the performance history of these works in the Dominican Republic, and in particular uh, with the use of period instruments, if, if any? Well, Guy, we have in the Dominican Republic a history of concerts and uh, visiting orchestras, visiting artistic groups. But in terms of Baroque or early music and period instruments, we are very limited. I know of very few groups that have come to the country 
playing early music on period instruments. And I know that in 2016, when we decided to bring the Peabody Renaissance Ensemble to the Dominican Republic, the sponsors that helped us in that year told us that the last year that a Renaissance Ensemble had come through the country was about 15 years earlier. And so the performances are few and far between, or were, because with the Conciertos de la Villa de Santo Domingo and with the festival, we aim to bring more and more of these experiences of early music, of Renaissance music, of Baroque music, period instruments, if possible. You both spoke of the impact that you sought through the festival do you think there was an impact on the music community and the music-loving community of these concerts in particular? There was a woman sitting next to me who is now in her 80s, who is a woman of the world, to be sure. And she turned to me when it was over and said, well, I've waited 40 years for that. And I believe in my heart that this really stuck. people knew who you were, even though you were not there so many days, the depth of relationship building that you all engaged in, you were such ambassadors for not only, frankly, Boston or H&H, but I would even say for the, for the country. You came and you just were amazing and people fell in love with you and there were receptions and, and the whole audience could come to see you and know you in some kind of way. And I thought this was just the best uh, possible modeling, what you could hope for. I could not have been happier as an artistic director. It was it hit every, uh, it checked off every box I wanted, and so much more. And I'm always going to be grateful that that those days could happen, and particularly in the time in which they happen in the history of the world. It was a moving experience while it happened, and in retrospect, of course, this is the last public performance that Handel and Haydn gave before the shutdown. So it means a lot still to our musicians and our organization to have been invited to do it. I'm grateful for the work you both do and for involving us in it, and I am very, very grateful for your time and joining me today. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. Yolanda Boras and John Thomas Dodson are executive director and artistic director, respectively, of the Conciertos de la Villa de Santo Domingo. Back to you, Ian. You heard Yolanda and John talk about the impact of this tour in Santo Domingo. The Brandenburg Concerti certainly are impactful music. What is your personal history with them? Well, like all musicians on stage in Santo Domingo, it goes back a long way. We know the music very well, and it feels to me like I've always known that music, either by recordings. I remember my dad, when I was a kid, used to go to Poland on business and bring back some kind of obscure Polish recordings of Brandenburg concertos and other things. So I feel I've always known that music. It's difficult to pinpoint the very first time that I ever took part in a performance but it seems like we've all lived with that music for a long time. Do you remember the first time you directed one or more of these concertos? Yes, I do. Yeah, I think my first experience of Brandenburg concertos individually was Brandenburg III. I suppose it's because it's a, a strings piece, whereas all the others involve either specialized instruments, like number six is obviously strings, but it involves gambas. 
Brandenburg III involves the basic string orchestra, as it were, without any other wind instruments. And I think that's done more commonly, perhaps, because of that, and less so of some of the others. I, I think performances of Brandenburg VI perhaps have been rarer. My first experience of directing number three was actually a very unusual concert. Talk about the Academies of Art in the Fields once again, which was directed by Iona Brown at the time. It was very rare for anyone else to direct those concerts. There was an, an odd concert that happened in Norfolk. Neville Mariner and Iona weren't free, and they asked me to do it. And Brandenburg III was one of those pieces. I remember being horribly nervous as a callow youth, but um, it seemed to go okay. It makes sense that you've had the longest history with this concerto to me. Uh, because I noticed that when we perform these, and again, we do these either individually or as a complete set at least two or three times a season these days, that of all of them, this is the one you don't use sheet music for. You play this memorized. You just know it cold. Well, it's a sort of muscle memory, really. Yeah, I don't need the music for it. And it's actually much more fun and much more freeing. With this and other music, of course, to, to just play it like that. You certainly always bring a lively and exciting performance. It seems that, as you said in the last episode, the rhythmic intensity, rhythmic life of the works is one of your goals in directing these works. Well, I think it really is. I, I think that the rhythmic acuity and the rhythmic vitality it's really essential for a successful performance of Brandenburg. It's not the sort of music that one can just sit back. Although there's an inherent energy in the music itself, it needs input from the performer to really make it speak and bring it alive. I think that's so important. So it's clear that you're intimately familiar with the music. Are you familiar with the history of the works? Can you tell our listeners how these came about? Yeah, to some extent, I believe that it was presented to the Margrave of Brandenburg in 1721 as, some people think, a, a job application. He gave the sixth concerti to him with a very nice flowery letter, but the pieces were never played. I think that the Margrave didn't have the forces required to play them, which is possibly something to do with it. I think there were 17 players required, not counting number one. And the Margrave didn't have that. Bach had that number of players at Curtin. And I believe that these concerti weren't written specifically for the job application, as it were, but really compiled from material that had already been composed in Curtin and possibly also in Weimar, even as early as that. My feeling is that many of the parts were written for specific players. I think that makes a lot of sense, especially with the high trumpet part in number two, which has to balance a recorder and an oboe and a violin, especially the recorder. Sometimes the trumpet and recorder play in thirds or in sixths, and they have to balance. So I think that Bach knew somebody that could do that. And similarly, some of the other parts have, have very virtuosic qualities, which indicate that a specific player was in mind, which makes a lot of sense, I think. So for the benefit of our audience, the four instruments you just listed, the trumpet, the recorder, oboe, and violin, are the four soloists highlighted in, yes, they are. in the second Brandenburg, exactly. And it should be mentioned that balancing a trumpet and a recorder is also tricky because the recorder essentially 
has one dynamic level. Good recorder players can affect a musical line and affect nuance with clever articulations, but the trumpet needs to balance so that the recorder is not lost within that texture. And right. today, a composition student bringing his or her teacher a manuscript with recorder and trumpet duos might receive a quizzical look but Bach doesn't really make these mistakes, so I, I think you're absolutely correct. He must have known a trumpet player who could do that. Well, especially as the, the trumpet part is so high. When a trumpet player plays high, it plays loud. <laughs> so in order to, to balance it, you know, the utmost control from the, the trumpet player is, is needed. It's as simple as that. So that, that tells me or indicates to me that there was a specific player that Bach knew that could actually do that. Interesting you should mention balancing a trumpet and a recorder. Balancing instruments is one of the things that you mentioned last episode is your job as a music director in this music. I assume that conducting a concerto affords you, the director, some opportunities to delve into the music and direct the ensemble, but much of the cues are probably taken from the soloist. Uh, maybe with 19th century concertos like a Dvorak cello concerto, for instance, that's like a symphony and has a very complex and fully flushed out orchestral part, but Baroque concerti tend to really focus on the soloist and offer what is sometimes pretty sparse material for the ensemble. What are the challenges in directing a set of concerti where members of the ensemble are the soloists and the combination of solo instruments is always changing? Well, of course, that's, that's very interesting, isn't it, in this particular context, because one of the major points of interest with the Brandenburg Concerti is that they are all completely different. And they are all concerti, but of different types. The standard Italian concerto of fast, slow, fast, that form, for example, that's in five of the six concerti. But one of them, number one in F, is very different to the other concerti because there's no soloist, in fact. It's groups of soloists. And everyone has a solo at some point, but it's not soloistic in the same way. That particular concerto has its own challenges. As far as the others go, of course, the soloists dictate pretty much everything. My job is to facilitate their ease of performance and not to impede what they're doing. I certainly offer any bright ideas I might have about the music, but Ultimately, they have to play it, and those solos have to feel comfortable. So I think really my major job is to keep things moving, to keep rehearsals moving, and to bring together a group of people who, like me, have known this music forever, and we're coming together to try to present a unified performance, all pulling in the same direction. So I think that's really my primary job, is to facilitate that and at the same time keep out of the way. That's an interesting concept, uh, keeping out of the way. And it's actually something important that I've learned from you in playing these pieces in particular, which is that, you know, Bach is Bach and he did most of the work for us. And sometimes the best thing we can do in interpreting this music is to stay out of its way. 
and I found some of my most memorable performances of this music to occur when I was able to do that. Yes, I totally agree with that. And well, it's your idea. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> then I'm all for it. Well, all great composers, it's the, it's the same thing, isn't it? It's the Beethoven performances I've done, we try to interpret, but eventually one comes back to just basically doing what Beethoven tells you to do. Uh, why didn't we do that in the first place? Because it saved an awful lot of time. Bach has done it, and with some sense of style and, and some scholarship and, and some playing with people that know what they're doing, one can find that way. But I think keeping things simple, keeping one's own personality in check is actually one of the hardest things to do. But as soon as one plays any piece of music, you are, in quotes, interpreting it. But with Bach, I remember Franz Bruggen, I'm working with him at one point, and he said, memorably, everything in Bach must be perfect. And that really stuck with me. But perfect in the sense that you're basically just doing what he's asking you to do. And I, I find that to be a really a good starting point, at least. I find that a very refreshing position, both from Bruggen and from you as conductors. This is not universally adopted by all those who wave the baton. Mm. Conductors, as we know them, practically didn't exist during Bach's lifetime. Mm. I suppose under rare circumstances, there were timekeepers at various points in music history up until then. But the music director-conductor that we know of today is a 19th century phenomenon. Now, you've directed these performances from the harpsichord, so you perform and direct. Can you describe the benefits and detractions, if any, to leading an ensemble in this way? There are very few accounts of Bach, his own direction of, of ensembles. But there is one where it talks about the rhythm appearing to flow out of his body. And he appeared to be completely immersed in the rhythm and the drive of it. I find that interesting. The harpsichord is an instrument which facilitates that. It's primarily a dramatic instrument, I think. And it enables one to act as a kind of a, not a timekeeper, but a, an energizer and a, an enhancer of rhythmic acuity because of its very nature and sound. So I personally love that. I, that's what I love about harpsichord playing, is that I can perhaps make a good, solid contribution, and in some cases even influence the rhythmic vitality and acuity of, of an ensemble. I remember conducting Lucia de Lammermoor, and what always stuck in my head with that was how there was no conductor in Naples at that time, that the concertmaster would bang a tin can with, with their bow to keep time, which some people may feel is not unlike the harpsichord, but um, <laughs> that's certainly how they did it. And certainly in Baroque music, the, the harpsichord has that function of, by not keeping time, because our musicians have great, a great sense of time. It's not that. It's taking it to a more subtle rhythmic level of nuance, which I very much enjoy. 
You just mentioned that you see the harpsichord as a dramatic instrument. Now, I hope that one day we can do an episode where you can describe the various keyboard instruments that you perform on and the benefits to each and their uses in our music. I am curious, though, how do you see the harpsichord as a dramatic instrument? I would say primarily in Respective, which in Handel Opera, for example, there's endless opportunity for infinite inflection and nuance and drama with arpeggiation and scale-type passages and filling and, and moving. One really has the opportunity with the harpsichord to link movements through with a real flourish. Of course, the fifth Brandenburg is enormously dramatic in, in the cadenza and in other places too. It's difficult to see how one could really replicate that sort of activity on any other instrument. It should be noted that players on other instruments do attempt this concerto. Pianists, for instance, uh, there are recorded examples of pianists in the early part of the 20th century uh, not using the harpsichord, but a Steinway Grand, and to a much, much different effect. Yes, it's a completely different effect, because it's not the instrument uh, it was designed for. The harpsichord has qualities which can't be replicated on a, on a grand piano. And I, I enjoy playing Bach on pianos, but it is a different experience. I'm thinking about some of the figuration in some of the, the, the 48 Preludes and Fugues, for example, is D major fugue. The final entry of the subject is right at the very bottom of the keyboard, of the harpsichord. And one gets a real buzz from that. It, it buzzes. You can hear the notes, but there's a terrific resonance in the upper partial just going crazy because it's right of the thickest strings down there. When you play it on the piano, there's another two and a half octaves. In fact, if you're playing a Bersendorf, when you lift up the lid, there's another half octave under that. So you're really nowhere near the bottom of the keyboard at all. And it doesn't have that similar dramatic effect. So I think there's a lot of um, lot of elements that one loses by playing the modern piano in Bach, at least. Earlier in our conversation, you mentioned the first Brandenburg Concerto, and I would love to come back to that and hear your thoughts. At the end of our last conversation, which dealt with the touring aspects of our last performance of the Brandenburg Concerto, you mentioned that one of the more memorable musical moments from this trip for you was the horn playing in the first concerto. This is the only concerto that horns take part in. What led you to single them out? Well, that's one of the reasons, of course, is that they only perform in that concerto. But there are other instruments that only perform in the first concerto too. For example, the bassoon, which we generally think of as being a continuo instrument, an instrument which the Baroque bassoon, the sound really blends so well with the string bass. We don't have to think of that as being a solo instrument, but it does appear as a soloist, which is very novel. And another example of Bach's innovation and genius, it appears in the, in the trio with the, the two oboes and in other places too. So I, I think that's unusual. The horns have a, a very, very interesting role, I think, in Brandenburg 1. It's basically three groups. There's the string group, and there's the oboe group, who kind of contend with each other throughout. But then another group appears, the two horns. 
And the horn was a very, very specific instrument in a way in Baroque times. It, it was basically to do with hunting. The, the foresters would have horns which signaled the direction of the prey during the hunt. It would signal the prey had been found. It would signal stay back, hold your fire, there, all, the, all this sort of thing. And so the various signals which were used in hunting and forestry, these were the horn players that did this. I think there's a couple of phrases in the opening horn sections which either original or they mimic closely the original sound. So what's really interesting to me is that later on in the movement, the two horns adopt a different approach in opposition to that. They actually have rather lyrical passages. It's almost like they're putting on a different uniform. You know, they, they've been the foresters at the beginning. And now they're adopting a more kind of genteel, uh, stylish garb. So I, I found that fascinating. And it would be very unusual to have two horns in a concerto in Bach's time because it's so strongly associated with that sort of rural, bucolic aspect. Another interesting instrument in the first concerto is the piccolo violin. The piccolo violin is obviously much smaller than a normal or regular violin, although the, not the neck. The neck is the same size. It's like uh, kitchen utensils. You, know, you can have a small saucepan or a large saucepan, but the handle's kind of the same size. Um, and the piccolo violin is tuned either a third or a fourth higher than a normal violin tuning. It doesn't play higher. It plays the same note but it's the sound of the violin which is different. It's a different timbre. And I think the reason for that is twofold. In the rather thick texture of, especially the third movement, it gives a brightness to the, the sound of the violin, which makes it cut through and, and stand out in a different way. And in the extraordinary second movement, it creates a better counterpoint with the oboes and perhaps the regular violin sound would be too close to the oboe sound. And in fact, in the same way that bassoon and the bass line meld so beautifully, oboes and violins do the same thing. So I think that Bach's idea was to actually make that differentiation in sound to enable the counterpoint of the two gorgeous parts to come together. People tend to ask me what my favorite one of the suites for unaccompanied cello by Bach is. Do you have a favorite concerto? On which day? <laughs> I, <laughs> it really depends, doesn't it? It seems to sort of float around a little for me. But I love number six, I have to say. I love number six because of the richness of the sound. There's something about those low strings, especially with the addition of the two gamba parts, which is very affecting to me. I love the colors involved. And I think Bach did too. Bach, I believe, played the viola in curtain. Um, like many great composers, he loved to play the viola. Brahms, obviously, and Mozart too. And something about being in the middle of the texture, which they enjoyed. I believe that when the Fifth Brandenburg was first performed to dedicate a new harpsichord. Bach played the viola in the orchestra, and he wanted to play the, the big solo part. So Bach played the harpsichord. The second violinist moved down to viola. 
which is why there's no second violin part in Brandenburg 5, which I think is an interesting snippet. If I had to choose, I would go with number six. Well, gratefully, you don't have to choose because you get to direct complete performances of these every year and we don't make you choose. <laughs> right. <laughs> I am the beneficiary of, and I believe that our audience are the beneficiaries of that as well. So, Ian, uh, you and I have been Sonata partners. We've shared the Continuo line at H&H, and I've played Concerti when you've conducted. I even played in your wedding it's been a while since we've played together, but this has been a lovely conversation and a nice reminder of making music with you. I'm so grateful for your time. Very much so, Guy, and I hope it won't be long till we do it again. Thanks so much. Thank you. Ian Watson is Associate Conductor of the Handel and Haydn Society. Thank you for tuning in. You may find supplemental material to this episode, such as biographies, information on the Handel and Haydn Society and the Conciertos de la Villa de Santo Domingo, and links to the filmed performances of the Brandenburg Concerti in Santo Domingo on our website, handelandhaydn.org. I hope you'll join me for the next episode. Mm-hmm.